I'm Shannon Paradis, the host and founder of Learn Laugh Leap. This podcast is centered around health and wellness, the pursuit of happiness, and journey to finding your true calling, which is why today I'm talking to a college neighbor of mine, Stephen Markley. Just last week, his debut novel, Ohio, came out, and it has generated a ton of buzz already. I want to find out what it takes to be a writer and where he finds the creativity and grit to put together a work of art like Ohio. I like books where you forget who you are and you forget who the author is, and you're just sort of wrapped into this world and wrapped by it. He's a screenwriter and journalist and a graduate of the Iowa Writers Workshop. We happened to go to Miami together, although it was fifth year for you, right, Stephen? Yes, correct. And were you actually going to school at the time? No, I was delivering pizza and working at Buffalo Wild Wings uh, and hanging out with my derelict neighbors too much. Oh my gosh, good times. So, but he went on to do great things, way way more than I've ever accomplished in my life. So he is the author of Publish This Book. It is amazing. You guys need to get that one. And Tales of Iceland. His debut novel is Ohio, and it's coming from Simon and Schuster in August. And he lives in LA. And today I wanted to pick Stephen's brain on what it's like to be a writer. Talk to me a little bit about how you came into um, becoming a writer. What inspired that for you? I think it had basically been the only thing I wanted to do with my life for about as long as I can remember. There was a brief period when I thought I was going to play in the NBA. Uh, oh, wow. But, well, <laughs> I mean, Big it ended sort of when, when I got to age 14 and realized uh, I wasn't growing much more and uh, that was not going to be as likely. So I switched to writing and have been uh, sort of in hot pursuit of it ever since. At what point did you move out to L.A. and was that for or to pursue writing? Yeah, so I moved out here about two years ago. I'd been in Iowa for three years and Chicago for six years before that and bounced around a little elsewhere. But yeah, I came out here basically to pursue screenwriting while I finished my novel. So I've sort of been doing both at once. A big part of this podcast is stepping into your authentic self and just digging into your creativity to find out what your true passion is. Sure. So being a writer can be such a grind and yes. you've probably felt at times before getting books out there like you were a starving artist or that because you weren't achieving immediate success you might want to give up or like go a different direction so what is it that has kept you going and that keeps you motivated and drives you i really think almost more important than talent as a writer is tenacity and just sort of the willingness to receive rejection after rejection after rejection and keep going and for whatever reason that has proven to be something i've been adept at uh, is is banging my head against the wall until my skull's bleeding uh, and and not really caring too much about about that you know it's weird cuz you go through these periods when you're you know when my first book came out i was like oh i've made it like this is it i'm going to be drinking gravy for the rest of my life And that certainly turned out to not be the case. But, you know, I was 26 or I think I was 26 when it came out, which is really young. uh, And I certainly had eyes the size of dinner plates about what my future might hold. And when those things I wanted didn't fall into my lap, uh, it was it was really, you know, there's this thing I, I joke about my friends. It's sort of like a postpartum depression with a creative project. 
where you get it done, you finish it, you put it out in the world. And the world isn't receiving it. Well, and even if the world does receive it, you know, that attention is ephemeral. It, it evaporates really quickly, almost more quickly than you can believe. And I think when it evaporated for me that first time, I was just like sort of like in a daze wandering around wondering what to do. What's next? Never. <laughs> is that no, too dramatic? You're, like, you're so right. You like pour your heart and soul into it and you never really think like what what is going to be the next thing. Right. Was published right. this book the first book that you published? Yes. Okay. Yes. It's, it is incredible. I love just pretty uh, much everything you. about it. So who was your kind of muse or like, did you have a mentor at that point that was really kind of guiding you through the writing process? Yeah. I mean, I had a professor from Miami by the name of Stephen Bauer, who was generous and helpful to me when I was younger. And then, uh, you know, when I went to Iowa, I was lucky enough to sort of meet a, another set of uh, writers who were just great people to have in my life at that period. Your elders, right? Like the people who can, you know, not only tell you when you're, you, you need more work or you need to make this better or that better, but can also like sort of sit you down and say like, it's going to be okay. You know, like think, <laughs> things will work it. out. Yeah. Uh, or maybe it won't be okay, but that's okay too. And people who can uh, sort of give you an idea of how to go about that, I think are invaluable. How long did it take you to get that book written? Uh, publish this book? Yeah. That actually was went fairly quickly. I mean, it went from two chapters and a proposal to a, a full manuscript in the course of about a year, year and a wow. half. Yeah, I mean... Well, it's different because when you sell a nonfiction book on a proposal, you know, you, you have the advance. They're going to publish it unless you really shit the bed. I, can we cuss on it? Can I cuss yeah, on this? I'm sorry. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I could, I really churned that out in, and you know, like I was so excited to have the contract. I was just like tearing through it. Ohio was a much different story. And I think just because of the nature of fiction required a lot more sort of contemplative work. Mm -hmm and rewriting and hair pulling and, and the aforementioned banging of the head against the wall yeah. until the skull's bleeding. Yeah. With Ohio, you mentioned this is like a whole different story. Yeah. Um, different genre. What's that road been like for you? I started Ohio just before I got to the program at Iowa. From there, I think I finished the first draft. So about 2012 to 2014, uh, to finish the first draft, and then 2014 till about four months ago to, to complete all the revisions and edits. A quote from Publish This Book. This, as the kids say, sucks. Writing is hard, not the actual writing part, which varies. It can be like eating cotton candy through a straw or off a stick, depending. The making money from writing part, that's a bitch. Yeah, no, I mean, it's why writers can't be properly compensated because it takes up your entire life and when you get your advance or whatever you get your paycheck it's like oh this is gonna work out to like 11 cents an hour uh, <sighs> your return's not good mm -hmm, mm -hmm. okay but and so you're putting in like a full-time job 40 hours a week or more during this whole time to try to get it published is that right uh well you know you know i've taught i've tutored I've sold uh, possessions in garage sales, uh, my plasma at one point, uh, been to a pawn shop once or twice. You find ways to, to get by so you can do the thing you really care about. What is it that you care about in, in Ohio? What's, what's the message that you want to get out about it? You know, weirdly, Ohio is almost a more personal book than published this book really? is, even though it's fiction and even though it's, it's not about me. Interesting the necessary imaginative and creative leap that one has to take to write a novel is much more difficult than to sort of give an entertaining history of your life and times, which is more what 
publish this book with them. How much did the writer's workshop help you get more into your creative picture of what this book would look like? A lot. Mostly. I had just been, in the years before that, you know, trying to work on another project. But also I was just, you know, super strapped for money. Freelancing is like a miserable way to make a living. Uh, It sounded so romantic to me when I set off (laughs) to do it. And then immediately was disabused of that notion. It just takes up an enormous amount of time. Nobody's paying you on time. It's uh, Nobody pays you on time? Oh, Shannon, there are publications that still owe me checks uh, no in the equivalent way. of like $35 yeah. to $50 that I'm just like, I've given up ever trying to recuperate. You know, that's the way our economy is. And wow. so you're, you're trying to get by. And when I got to Iowa, you know, I was teaching as well. They pay you. But I just had a lot more time on my hands to focus on the work. And then in addition to that, you know, there are these brilliant writers there teaching. And my peer group, uh, the classes I graduated with, just full of insanely talented, funny, intelligent people. A lot of those guys sort of served as as fuel to, to getting the work done. Is there a certain spot that you go to write to get your inspiration? No, I'm always a, um, I, I just like work at a desk in my room. I don't really, I don't need the coffee shop thing. I don't need, okay. you know, I don't need to wear the beret. Uh, <laughs> I... <laughs> oh, but I'd love to see that though. Yeah, no, I mean, I would look sick in it, I'm sure. Uh, of course. I'd really pull it off. You know, it's like a, a typically trashed writer's desk with books and notepads everywhere. And there's like organization to it. It's just only in my brain. Organized chaos. And do you ever hop out of bed to write something down? Because it's just popped into your mind in the middle of the night. Every once in a while. Mostly I'll just like mull over things for a long time. Yeah. Uh, like I think like a lot of the work of any creative endeavor, it's just sort of you're in the shower processing something or you're walking thinking about something. Uh, and it's just that churn that actually creates it. I, I feel like I have a good churn so that by the time I sit down to actually write, I've thought pretty hard and long about whatever it is I'm working on. Ohio, it's a murder mystery and a social critique. That's what I've seen or read about it. So how far away is this from the style? Like, publish this book definitely has humor in it. And like on Amazon, they compare you, and I don't know who wrote this, but they compare you to Dave Eggers and David Sedaris. Do Do you have any idea who put that out there? Or was that you? (laughs) <laughs> no, no, that was, okay. that, that was not me. Okay. I like that accusatory note, though. I'll, I'll keep that in mind. Yeah. Okay. I definitely, I need I need to get on Amazon more and write my own reviews. Gotta get your message out there. But, yeah. like, I, I love David Sidney. I love both of those authors. So it's like, yes, and that totally, like, resonates. But I, I don't know that we can say the same stylistically for Ohio. Like, No, the Ohio is definitely about as far and wide a departure from that book as as you can get. I mean, it's it's dark. It's it's dark and it's pretty raw. It's sort of the book I always wanted to write. It's weird because I got out of school and I just had so much energy. I just wanted to be working on something. And my career sort of got taken down this path that I I hadn't really planned on. Hmm. Um, But I was finding a lot of success at Red Eye in Chicago as a columnist. What were you writing for them? Mostly humor. Okay. Um, Humor, political stuff. I feel like when you're 25, you're just like, I have ideas. Everybody listen to my ideas. They're so good. You're going to love this. Get a load of my ideas. Yeah. You know, I I wanted to be a novelist. So that's like what I've 
had always hoped for and intended. And I just got sort of wildly sidetracked for a decade plus. Um, <laughs> it's a long time to get sidetracked. <laughs> yeah. You know, when I got to Iowa and finally had the time to sort of sit down and take out this idea I'd had for a while and these, you know, these sort of stories I'd been wanting to tell and could really focus on it and drill down, you know, something very different came out than my first book. Just from what I know of you, and obviously we were in a different space in college and like different mindset, but I would never be like, oh, Steve, yeah, real dark guy, yeah. you know, lo probably loves murder mysteries, kind of kind of creepy yeah. like that. Yeah. And you said that this is more personal to you than publish this book. So where did that come from? Where did that side come from? Well, so you, we like know each other from college. So we, like, you know me personally. And I feel like I have no, I, nobody knows what they're like in front of other people, right? Uh, yeah. You're, you're just sort of trying to get by and, and not uh, piss off anyone too much. <laughs> yeah. But a lot of the interiority is, is something like other people might feel comfortable sharing and I just never do. Hmm. And that so much of what's on my mind sort of finds outlet in the writing. Mm -hmm. And this is the book where it's it's like, okay, here are the things I've obviously been wrestling with in my subconscious for years and years and years. And it's my opportunity to give them voice through, you know, these four or five or six different characters. What are your hopes for the book? Small and large goals, bestseller, top 10. <laughs> and I actually saw it on Audible's top three for 2018. Whoa. Yeah, that's cool. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. That sounds good. I googled the book and it was top three for the year. All that stuff is so far out of my hands. I went to New York for this thing called the Book Expo Buzz Panel. So my book got selected for this early like, oh, this is going to be a, a book people should read thing. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm not describing that very well, but uh, <laughs> this is a book people yeah. should read. <laughs> you know, so I was like on a panel and I was in, sitting in front of a bunch of people and I was like signing books and it was pretty surreal because even with Publishers Book, the experience was nothing like that. But it, it occurred to me like this is all so random and you just can't predict what's going to happen with any piece of art, let alone a novel in the year 2018 when everybody's much more concerned with Instagram. Um, <laughs> Good point. It's, Good point. You know, it's, but you still have your diehard readers. For sure. For sure. And I hope people do read the book. I want people read the book but i have to just be extremely satisfied and uh happy with the fact that i'm even here uh you know mm -hmm. this is something i've wanted to do since i was probably five years old and wow. to see it come to fruition and just to sort of hear back from some of the people who've read it you know already and and hear how enthusiastic they are about it is it would be more enough more than enough to carry me through to whatever comes next how many people in your circle outside of your publishers have read the book almost nobody yet really yeah because is that a rule yeah i mean i'm not like sharing it with like phil you know <laughs> <laughs> but phil would love to read it phil is gonna love to read it yeah phil <laughs> will freaking love it phil is? Is... yeah well phil was your old roommate at yeah. miami i mean you guys were friends before that yeah, we're we're from the same town, and we've yeah we've remained friends over the years, and actually found out we're third cousins. Do you know that story? That's a weird no story. way. Yeah, we found oh out gosh. years after knowing each other that we were related and are actually in fact third cousins. The hell, it's a real Ohio story. You know? <laughs> Yeah. Jeez. And then everybody was just making the joke, now you guys can't hook up anymore. And it was funny for 
<laughs> Gotta love minute. your friends. Yeah. But sure. so... Nobody's read the book yet. And so, I, yeah, I'm both excited and nervous about everybody getting a hold of it. When you published, published this book, like immediately was there everybody in your network went out and grabbed it? Yeah, more or less. So you felt the support there. Yeah. yeah. I don't do a lot of things right in general in my life, but <laughs> one, one of the things I have... Oh, self-deprecating. Come on. You know, it's true. Uh, if you could see the, the room I'm living in right now, you would agree with me. <laughs> um, you, you have to, to survive in LA. Yeah. You can't have a mansion. Oh, yeah. No, we're all, we're all stuffed into tuna cans. Yeah. Uh, but no, uh, <laughs> I have been blessed with a really terrific network of people who are endlessly supportive, and that has been instrumental in keeping going. Going back to the question about the goals with the mm-hmm. book, we I guess we didn't really fully finish. You said that you weren't sure how it was going to be received with the day and age that we're in. But do the publishers give you a hint of like, well, compared to other things that we've published, this is just going to be like a rock star book? <laughs> I think it is getting a lot of attention early on, which is super nice. I guess from my perspective, I am just happy with the fact that it is... It it exists. It exists. It got sold. It's out. People are reading it. And, you know, in all likelihood, I'll I'll have a chance to uh, write another one. Simon & Schuster, I don't know that many publishers, like maybe Penguin, but... Okay. (laughs) Like, Simon & Schuster, that's pretty big, isn't it? Yeah, they're they're a big one. How did you capture their attention? I have a kick-ass super agent named Susan Gollum, who is, you know... Yeah, as relentless and and good at her job as as anybody I've really ever seen. So she basically harangued my editor into, no, I should say, like, she really believed in the book. Early on, when it was in sort of rougher shape in an earlier draft, uh, she really, really saw something in it and made made sure I knew that. And then we uh, got to Simon & Schuster and the editor there, Kerry Goldstein, was hesitant at first, but once he was on board, became also extremely enthusiastic about it. And I think anything that's happening with it now reflects the sort of the work and dedication of of those people behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. I'm curious too about the behind the scenes with Simon and Schuster. How many Well it's a lot of orgies. It's a lot of like I like that orgies um, in big corporate towers oh. and Oh, would love to that. see that. Mm. It's kind of what I figured. Yeah. Right, but exactly. I'm glad to know the truth now. But no, what the... pulling back that curtain. No, just like what are they agree how many are they agreeing to publish and why is it such a big deal to actually have them say yes? Like why do they have to reject so many? I mean, publishing is a really difficult business. I certainly have my critique of publishing, but also the, the flip side of that is that very few people read books and nobody knows mm-hmm. what the hell people want to buy. Um, <laughs> well, it's true. And, oh and so, you know, a book comes out, like Hunger Games comes out and, people, and it sells like crazy and people are like, oh, let's buy every dystopian teen sci-fi <laughs> novel we can find. Uh, Ah, until, you you know, let's just... Because they see the appeal there. Well, right. I mean, you know, you're trying to sell books and very few books make money, and especially in the literary space where four or five books a year will actually sell big numbers. But it's hard. It's really hard. And especially, you know, I mentioned Instagram, but that's not really a joke. It's just like there's so many things competing for people's attention now. Uh, And it's, it's, you know, harder and harder to get people to sit down and, and read something. Although I think they should because books are cool. While you're writing the book, were there books that you were reading that were also inspiring you or some authors that you were kind of taking notes from? 
Yeah, for sure. I have sort of a canned answer to this question and then uh, a fuller answer. The, the, the canned answer is right at the beginning, I read uh, Beloved by Toni Morrison and I went through sort of a Toni Morrison phase after that. And just sort of the the hauntedness, the Ooh. the scenic, like the scope of, of the world she creates were always uh, sort of in the back of my mind. And then towards the end, I was reading some Steinbeck, Grapes of Wrath and East of Eden. Oh. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've Love heard it. Like, Steinbeck's out of style. Pfft, who's to say what's out of style those books are classics uh, they're always arbiters of taste what was it that you were hoping to pull out of grapes of wrath it's not that i think you're looking to pull anything out there are certain things that that work on your brain better than others yeah and i think that's sort of something i'm always after is, is looking for a reading material that's challenging me or you know making me feel the feels <laughs> uh whatever is is sort of like taking you outside of your own head yeah I like books where you forget who you are and you forget who the author is. Yeah. And you're just sort of wrapped into this world and wrapped by it. Yeah. Like taking, <laughs> pulling down the walls and just forgetting space and time. Yes. There's no predicting though what, like my friend will have a favorite book and I'll read it and feel nothing and, you know, she'll hate something else. And then I'll read it and be like, this is beautiful and brilliant. That encounter between the reader and the author is so uh, bizarre and in ineffable and, you know, you can't understand it. Yeah. You mentioned a couple times banging your head up against a wall. What percentage of the time does writing feel like work versus an outlet or a passion, something where you're actually like getting away? The actual creative process of sitting down and writing never feels like work to me. Hmm. Uh and I would probably do it if nobody ever published anything I wrote. Wow. You know, I always tell my students, like, I think there's value just in the act of creating something without hoping for the attention and the yeah. know, the rat pellet that comes with that attention. Rat pellet? Yeah, you know, like, you, you get to the end of the maze and you get the little pellet. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, the science experiment. Got it. Yeah. Got it. So without the reward of publication, like, I think there's something valuable in the act of the creative process. So it, it never, ever feels like work to me. It feels like you know, more or less one of the few enjoyable things, truly enjoyable things that there is. And another quote from Publish This Book. For as long as I can remember, I've tried to make a habit of sitting down at my computer for an hour a day, six days a week. As Stephen, he's talking about his professor, tells every one of his classes, the most important part of being a writer is apply ass to chair. There is no substitute. Each night I start slowly, as I did when I began this paragraph. But this is often how it works. You sit down to write something specific, but you can't get your head around it, so it frustrates you. It feels like you're trying to open a can of soup while wearing boxing gloves. I long ago learned that you have two choices, fight through it or try something else. Yeah, the work part is on that other side where, you know, I hope to make a living and like not a shitty living like I've been making. Yeah. And that that part is is much more fraught and it's disappointing and all the rest. And that's the part that I've had to tough out and figure a way to like keep the joy in the writing while navigating that other space. The physical aspect of writing, do you enjoy typing on a computer or physically writing with a pen? Nah, I'm a, you know, I'm the Microsoft Word generation. When, when people talk about writing longhand, I'm like, well, okay, but it's slower and you can't cut and paste. And, <laughs> so true. Yeah. And then you're like scratching things out and you can't just delete something that's stupid, even though you can see it's stupid right there on the page. Um, <laughs> I would imagine like, at least for publish this book, 
there's so many situational things that are hilarious in life Mm -hmm. where you have to bring a journal with you because there's so many things in life that have to be in your book because they're hilarious. And you just think like, how is this happening in my life right now? Like in a coffee shop, just somebody being (laughs) like over the top annoying. So you write it down and then it becomes content. Yeah. Well, sure. I mean, there's nothing more absurd than just navigating your your general life. Yes. Especially with fiction, what a book is, is like, you know, a compressed set of snippets you've you've sort of gathered throughout your life. You know, there are little moments in Ohio that I could trace back to, you know, something someone said to me in in 1997 uh, that just stuck in my head. It's a good memory. Yeah, well, I mean, it's not even intentional, though. It's just I'm sure something happened to Shannon in middle school that she remembers, you know, more distinctly than almost anything else. And you don't always think about it. But then, you know, if you're writing, 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 it just sort of springs out of the out of the ground. Yeah, It's called I had a bowl cut. That's what I remember. Oh, now, see, that that is a great detail. God, Shannon, I didn't even have a bowl cut. You did it? No, I was like the only kid who managed to get through that period. So you were always attractive. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Great time. Loved it. Anything else? I kind of hate this question for you because it's like you are doing something fantastic, but what else do you have? (laughs) Yeah. Actually, I'm I'm adapting Ohio into a pilot for a a sort of a limited series for TV. So that is what I'm working on right now and probably will be working on for the foreseeable future. Does that mean you already have a contract in place for TV? I do. What? (laughs) Bravo. Uh, Yeah. So I have oh my a gosh. deal to write the pilot. I have to temper this with just the fact that things get bought and they don't get made. Uh, and I think it's important for me to sure. sort of see this as a possibility, but uh, by no means is it certain. So when can we expect to see that? <laughs> you might never see it. That's one <laughs> possibility okay. because somebody has to buy it. Right. The network has to buy it and make it. So I don't really know. Okay. Uh, all I, Again, it's like one of those things. All I can do is I have control over this small fiefdom in uh, the history of planet Earth and I can control writing it uh, and that's about it. Stephen is going to read the first three pages of the book Ohio to end this podcast. He is on a book tour right now and so I'm excited to see him in Minneapolis this Thursday, August 30th. So if anyone in my town is interested in seeing him, let me know and I can get you the rest of the details. But he's also traveling to Cincinnati, Iowa City, Portland, and Jackson, Mississippi, to name a few. You can get his book at any major book retailer, including Barnes & Noble and Amazon. So go pick it up and continue listening for a taste of Stephen's literary genius. So this is from Ohio. This is the opening. The coffin had no body in it. Instead, the Star Legacy 18-gauge platinum rose casket on loan from the local Walmart had only a large American flag draped across its length. It rode down High Street on a flatbed trailer, tugged along by a Dodge Ram 2500 the color of an overripe cherry. A blast of early winter cold had invaded October, and a hard, erratic current of air tore across New Canaan with the unpredictability of a child's tantrum. One second the breeze was calm, tolerable, and the next a frigid banshee shriek would rip across High Street, chilling the assembled, scattering leaves and loose litter, drowning out petty chatter, and carrying voices off to the sky. Before the truck and its cargo left the fire station, the staging ground for all of New Canaan's parades from Thanksgiving to Fourth of July, no one had bothered to secure the flag. As the show casket reached downtown, a gust of wind finally took it. The stars and stripes flapped, undulated, parachuted through this mad breeze, as several sorrowful gasps issued from the crowd. Nothing could be done. Each time it began to drift back to earth, another gust would catch it, toss it, bear it aloft. The flag made its way to the square, where it finally snagged on the gnarled branches of an oak tree and shuddered there. The procession for Corporal Richard Jared Brinklin had originally been scheduled for Memorial Day, 
KIA in Iraq in the final days of April. The timing made sense. But then an investigation into the circumstances surrounding his death delayed the body's return. Once that wrapped up, the display of hometown pride was planned for the same July day as the funeral. Unfortunately, a monstrous summer thunderstorm overran that afternoon. A flash flood of the Catawba River and a tornado warning kept all of New Canaan indoors. At that point, Rick's family did not much care whether there was a parade or not, but the mayor, sensing the electoral hazard of failing to honor the third son New Canaan had lost in the current conflicts, insisted on scheduling a parade for October. People tended to roll their eyes at this small-town politicking and then go out and vote based on it anyway. The town was sleeved in red, white, and blue. Small flags spaced every 15 feet in the grass lined High Street for over a mile leading to the square. Flags and windows, as car decals, clutched in children's pink hands and adults' scummy gloved ones, even drawn with red, white, and blue frosting onto an enormous sheet cake being sold by the slice outside Vicky's all-night diner. The road's trees, rich with autumn reds and yellows, clashed brilliantly against the gunmetal sky. Meanwhile, the wind tried its goddamnedest to emancipate the leaves of these quaint elms, alders, and oaks. Two New Canaan Police Department cruisers led the way, lights silently flickering, an errant whoop from the sirens every few hundred yards, followed by the sheriff's cars, the SUVs, and every other vehicle the police department could spare for the son of one of its own. Chief Investigator Marty Brinkland's youngest boy. Volunteers on motorcycles followed, some driven by vets, but really anyone in town who owned wheels was there. American flags and POW MIA banners flapped from the backs of the bikes. Following this long hodgepodge of vehicles crawling slowly down the city's main thoroughfare came the flatbed with its flagless coffin. Some stepped out of their homes that bordered the east side of town, only to scramble inside after the casket passed. Some huddled in Ohio State jackets and New Canaan Jaguar sweatshirts. Some pulled bright blue Gore-Tex hoods around their heads, tugged toboggan caps low, and many, misjudging the weather, let their ears turn bright red and painful to the touch. One questionable soul wore nothing but disintegrating jeans and a no-fear shirt with the sleeves cut off, exposing arms inked solid with tattoos. Some held toddlers or gently rocked bundled babies in strollers. Older children stood with their parents, twiddly and bored, shifting weight anxiously from one leg to the other. Unsupervised kids chased each other through the legs of the adults, oblivious to the sorrow around them. The teenagers, of course, treated the whole affair as a social function, as Rick himself might have once. The girls flirted with the boys while those boys waited to be chosen. They talked too rapidly, they laughed too loudly, they carved their initials into trees with pocket knives. There was a man wearing a Desert Storm veteran ball cap, talking to the lone TV reporter who'd made the long trip from Columbus. There was a girl holding a piece of cardboard that said, that said simply, number 25. Another held a poster board that read, we love you, Rick. They worked at Owens Corning as engineers and data specialists, at the Jeldwin plant as general labor manufacturing doors and windows, in the antique and clothing shop on the square, using a doming block and hammer to mold buffalo nickels into ornamental buttons for purses and shirts. They worked at Kroger's and on road crews and at First Knox National Bank and the local DMV, which ran with such brisk efficiency that wait times rarely exceeded five minutes. They worked at the county hospital, the town's largest employer, as nurse practitioners, doctors, janitors, technicians, physical therapists, and physician's assistants. As private practices found it harder to get by, the hospital bought them up until the entire county relied on this single entity for its medical care. Many worked in the vast network of old age homes, retirement communities, and hospices, and of course a few worked in mortuary services and were not thrilled by Walmart's intrusion into the casket business. The residents of New Canaan owned the county's lone liquor store, veterinary practices, a sporting goods store that made 70% of its sales on guns and ammunition. They were psychologists and podiatrists. They drove trucks for potato chip suppliers. They worked as health inspectors. They built porches, installed hot tubs, fixed sewer systems, and landscaped. Some had tried to flip houses. 
One of them, age 23, had taken a loan from a bank, then another from his father, and was now looking up bankruptcy law online. Some worked for New Canaan's only newspaper, hands going carpal tunnel today trying to collect quotes about Rick. One of them coached the high school football team, and his praise for Rick was an indomitable waterfall. One of the finest young men I've ever coached, selfless, dedicated, best teammate I've ever seen, cared about every guy from the quarterback to the last guy off the bench. An Appalachian accident wind. Those who'd lost children thought of the ways they'd been taken. Leukemia and hunting accidents, suicides and car wrecks, liver tumors and drowning, cars that overheated in the summer sun with rescue just a few feet away, standing in line at the dry cleaners. Some had terrible dreams and woke frequently to sweat and confusion. Others shot up, showered, and went to work. <laughs>